the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today will help you thrive in life and leadership. Every once in a while, you know, I think I gotta have a conversation about this, and then you're waiting for the right person and the right conditions, and this is one of those episodes. David Platt is back on the podcast. We are gonna talk about the idolatry of personal and political convictions, how politics and divisions are fueling deconversion, and how the American gospel hijacks hearts and churches. Yep, I'm so glad we're doing this. Today's episode is brought to you by the Church Leader Toolkit. Hey, this is something I have put together to solve the number one barrier to church growth. It's a church toolkit, it's free. You can get it at churchleadertoolkit.com. Make sure you check it out. And last year, Glue's Reach program connected 127,000 people with churches across the country. That's an average of 12 new contacts every month for churches that sign up. You can go to get.glue.us slash reach to connect with more people in your community who need you. Well, I am so glad to have David back on the podcast. I really enjoy the conversations that we have. He is the author of three New York Times bestsellers. I suspect his next one is going to be one as well. Uh, They include Radical. He is also a pastor in Metro DC and the founder of Radical Inc., an organization that equips Christians to be on mission from where they live to the ends of the earth. He's been featured in such outlets as the New York Times, Christianity Today, and the Gospel Coalition. And I think David is such an important voice today. I love the way he tackles a very divisive subject in a non-divisive way. You, you, you be the judge of that, but that's how I think he handles it. I really enjoyed this. Uh, also, shout out to Saddleback Church. I did this interview at Saddleback in a spare office when I was in California for a while earlier this year. So thank you to them. Also, uh, stay tuned because Andy Wood and Stacy Wood from Saddleback are going to be on a future episode. Um, and speaking of which, we have a great YouTube channel that is more than fledgling. It's out there. And if you like to watch podcasts as much as you like to listen to them, make sure you check it out. Just go to YouTube and search Carrie Newhoff. You'll find me. We have got, well, hundreds of episodes up there now and would love to have you subscribe and check it out. Well, we all know how challenging it can be to keep growth and momentum going in your church or even find it in the first place. And to help, I have developed something I would love for you to check out. It's a free church leader toolkit. It's a set of free videos and practical guides. They're going to help you do a couple of things. Number one, it'll help you overcome the number one barrier to church growth. I explain what that is. Number two, it'll help you find and keep great leaders, even when you don't think you have any, like you look out at your church and go, eh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll show you how to find them. They're there. And then assess your outreach efforts. So drawing from years of experience I've had in the local church and also what I've learned from leaders around the world, I've got things in a very condensed way that can help you absolutely free So if you or anyone on your team wants the Church Leader Toolkit, get it today at churchleadertoolkit.com. Again, that's churchleadertoolkit.com. Super simple. I'll send you a copy right away and you can get started. Also, if you're like most pastors, your outreach strategy looks nothing like it did a year ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago. Everything's changing at the speed of light right now. And since they didn't teach marketing in seminary, you're going to want to pay attention to a revolutionary program from Glue called Reach. Last year, Reach connected over 127,000 people with churches across the country. So that means for the average church, an average of 12 new people a month get connected with your church if you sign up. Here's how it works. 
Glue partners with recognizable national campaigns for Jesus. Probably seen some. He gets us, K-Love, Churches Care, a whole lot of others. When people respond to those campaigns and ask to connect with the church, these are not cold calls, Glue matches them with a church in their city. Then your church receives connections in a dedicated inbox using Glue's suite of free texting tools, and you can start building the relationship. Super easy, does not require additional staff, Costs are covered by kingdom-minded donors who want you to have access to this one-of-a-kind tool. The best part, well, you can leave complex and expensive campaigns to someone else and get free access, and then you can focus on what you do best. So what are you waiting for? Go to get.glue.us slash reach. That's get.glue.us slash reach. You can sign up and start connecting with more people from your community who say they want to connect with you. That's get.glue.us slash reach so you can get started today. Well, and now my conversation with David Platt. David, welcome back. It's good to have you. Gary, it is good to be back. And can I just say from the start, uh, I think this is maybe the third time and the first time I was ever on with you. I We hadn't met, interacted. I... I just walked away and same with the last time and why I've been looking forward to this time. I'm so thankful for your genuineness, your authentic authenticity, your, uh, I, I just, I think it was Barbara Walters, wasn't it? That like used to make everybody cry when she interviewed them. I don't think I cried, <laughs> yeah. but I was yeah. pretty close. Like it was, a, there was a depth in those conversations. I just want you to know, I am personally thankful for you. And for those who listen to your podcast, obviously they know this, but just for them to know from the other side of this microphone, how grateful I am for a genuine conversation with you. So I've been really looking forward to this. And I should add, my wife is like, tell Carrie, I'm a huge fan of Carrie Newhoff. So anyway, uh, so you're, you're, you've got, you've got fans over here in the Platt household. And uh, I just, on a personal level, just want you to know, I'm genuinely grateful for you and the way you lead in all kinds of ways, but particularly in this ministry. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, it's a, I, I wake up every day surprised that I get to do this and have conversations with the leaders that I get to have conversations with. But I'm really grateful for you and your contribution. And, you know, in your latest book, just thank you for going there. I really appreciate it. So we're going to talk about that. And in Radical, you, you, you know, which is, can you believe that? Is that 10 years ago now? Yeah, it's David? 10 plus years. Yeah, it's over 10 years ago. Yeah. It's, 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 when did that come it's, out? It is 20. kind of insane. Man, I don't even remember. Like now, top of my head, like 2009, <laughs> 2009, around there. Oh, is that long ago? Nine, wow. Somewhere. Yeah, it was over 10 years ago. And and I mean, keep in mind, when I, I was the first book I'd written, I thought like my mom and a few people at our church would read it. And <laughs> I, I think I'd have read it one more time if I had thought that many people were going to read it. Like just, uh, <laughs> I, uh, but in a way that yes, uh, God just, uh, yeah, used it in a way, certainly in an Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 kind of way far beyond what I had asked or imagined. So. Yeah. Like one of those things, did I read somewhere? It was on the New York times bestseller list for 120 weeks or something like that. I don't remember. I just remember the first. Yeah week it was on there and the publisher called and they were like we're trying to figure out if this is some kind of error or mistake <laughs> like it doesn't 
We didn't see There's this a vote of confidence. Yeah. So don't get your hopes up, but I think this actually happened. Uh, so yeah. And then the, the joke was, Fred, that my wife and uh, I always had, because all that time it was on the New York Times bestseller list, it would never eclipse uh, the five love languages. And so it would oh, get Gary like, up, I just, yeah. yeah, I just could never get get over the five love languages. And so Heather was just like, just remember that, like, that's more important. That, so the love languages. So anyway. <laughs> Boy, that's a vote of confidence from the publisher. We think this might be a mistake, but perhaps, <laughs> perhaps you're on the New York it Times. Might, it list. might be true. We'll see. Might be true. But you know, that's one of those things like messages that take off. I met Gary uh, Chapman. Uh, I think I've told the story before, but it bears repeating. And it's a good reminder for me. So we're in Edmonton, Alberta. I don't know. Have you ever been there, David? I've not. Mm-mm. I'm a Canadian, so I can say this about my own country. Most most Americans, most of the people who listen to the show are American. But anyway, uh, we're in Edmonton, Alberta. It's minus 30. It doesn't matter whether that's minus Fahrenheit, minus 30 oh. Fahrenheit or Celsius. You're dead in like two minutes. So we're standing there waiting for a bus to take us to the conference. And I notice I'm like, I think that's Gary Chapman. And I go over to him while we're waiting for this shuttle van or whatever. And I'm like, are you Gary Chapman? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we start talking about it. And it has sold more every year since it was released in like 1993. And he has no explanation for it other than <laughs> God and people telling people mm. about it. But then I thought, wait a minute. I was like one of the keynotes. He wasn't. And I'm kind of like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Like you've sold enough books that you don't need to be standing waiting for a van when it's minus mm. 30 outside. So in the politest way I could, kind of asked him, what on earth are you doing here? He goes, oh, I'm doing a, a breakout. And I'm like, really? Gary Chapman's doing a breakout in Edmonton in January? I don't get this. Like you live in a warm climate. He's in North Carolina. And uh, I said, can, can I ask why you're doing it? And he just said, and the guy's like in his seventies at this point. And he just said, yeah, because there are people here whose marriages, like they just don't know. They haven't heard. Mm-hmm. So I'm here to share the message. And I'm like, Gosh, I hope that's me in 25 years. That's awesome. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that humbling? I love that story. So I do love that. For everybody wondering how to blow up online, it's like sometimes you can't even plan it, right? So Yeah, sure, sure. And wow, what a takeaway. Like faithful to the end (laughs) and faithful when no when yeah, very few people are looking and it's negative 30 degrees outside faithfulness. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So So very, very pivotal moment for me, but it was back in radical that you confronted the grip on the American dream and that that had on Christians faith. And that was sort of one of the, the premises of the book. So in your new book, don't hold back, you revisit the culture and the gospel again. And it kind of feels like 2009 was a whole other world and a whole other era, right? So what do you see now as the underlying issues impacting the health of the church and the American gospel? Yeah, I, uh, I actually, I've thought a lot about radical as I've written this book because I feel like it's radical at a whole nother level. Um, and the way I even put it in the book, I, I, I talk about how, so the subtitle for radical was taking back your faith in the American dream. After pastoring in Metro DC the last few years, I'm convinced it was, it's not just an American dream that's consumed our lives. It's actually an American gospel that's hijacked our hearts, that 
we have believed, the gospel we've embraced is different from the biblical gospel. And I think that's why we see the level of discouragement and disillusionment. Uh, and I'm, I, I was praying through who to dedicate this book to. And what came to my mind was discouraged, disillusioned, damaged, and divided Christians and the next generation. Mm. So like, because I talk with so many on, on both those levels, uh, people who are discouraged and disillusioned and divided in the church. And then a next generation. that's like so many people looking around saying, I thought there was more to Jesus than this. I thought there was more to the church than this. And I've, I, I wanted to write this book to say, there is, there is so much more to Jesus and so much more to the church than what we're seeing around us right now. And we can experience it better put, we can experience him. But in order to do so, some things need to be different. And starting not in those people out there, but in you and me, there, there's some things we need to talk about, we need to address at the core of our hearts and what we believed that have led to this kind of uh, atmosphere that we've seen around us in the church. And we have every reason to be encouraged when we look at Jesus and his design for the church. And so that's what I want to call us to do in this book. I remember when I got uh, the book sent by the publisher, uh, you know, advanced reader copy an ARC or uh, uh, whatever, galley copy, whatever they call them. And I'm like, oh, he's going there. And I was so grateful that you were going there. How do you, how do you define the American gospel? Like what, what is your working definition of it? Well, and I would say on the, on the going there piece, just to kind of mention there, I, uh, and that's why I titled the book, Don't Hold Back, because I've been tempted all along the way over the last few years to not go there. Like it feels like it'd be a lot easier and it'd lead to a lot less, uh, I don't know, everything from slander to uh, just pushback to challenges. Like if, if, if I, if we didn't step into some of these, these issues that need to be addressed. And so um, all that to say, I, I've, I wrote the book and titled it Don't Hold Back because I, I I feel like we as a church have been trying to go there and I want to encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, let's go there. We Let's not hold back from experiencing all that. What a unique time and place for us to be in to see the beauty of the biblical gospel in a way maybe we've not seen in a long time. And so uh, anyway, the, the way I define the American gospel or would talk about it is just that I think we've exchanged uh, a biblical gospel that exalts Jesus above everything in this world for an American gospel that prostitutes Jesus for the sake of comfort and power and politics and prosperity in our country. And uh, I think that exchange that has happened is the reason why we experience all kinds of the discouragement and disillusionment that we've seen. And I could, I'm glad to dive into all the effects. Yeah, let's, that I let's think dive into around. that. I want, yeah. I want to go there. Like comfort, you said comfort, I wrote some notes, comfort, power, prosperity, and politics. So are those sort of the major categories that you're looking at? Well, I would say, uh, in a sense, big umbrella, but then, okay, so diving in uh, and how this plays out. Instead of being eager to unite around Jesus, we have been quick to divide over the, what I would call, idolatry of personal and political convictions. 
Um, so that's, that's one area that I think we need to talk about. Then another area, like instead of enjoying the multi-ethnic beauty that Jesus has made possible for us as, in the church in a way that's different from any other community in the world, like we are still on a whole segregating by the color of our skin. Um, so, so I think we need to talk about that. I, instead of, uh, like I'm, I'm not for loosening convictions around what is most important in the Word, i.e. the gospel at the core of God's Word. Uh, but there's a way to hold on to God's Word with conviction and actually share it with compassion. Like it's water for friends in a desert instead of like a weapon we're using in a culture war. Um, so I think we need to talk about how do, how do you have compassionate conviction and then uh, I dive into, um, I think we, we get all caught up in debating justice and uh, and we're not doing justice in the way God has called us mm-hmm. to do in a world of injustice around us. We're spending all this time debating justice. Uh, and I'm all for defining justice biblically, but then what does that look like in our lives? And then to dive into uh, what does this mean for us to live, not for the pros- prosperity of our nation, but for the proclamation of the gospel in all nations. And that should change the way we operate as the church. And then the last kind of major area that I walked through is the tendency we have to view God as a means to an end instead of being the end, like a Psalm 27 for, I I think, again, part of the reason why we have seen what we've seen in the church is because uh, we've used God as a means to a variety of ends instead of him being the end, the one Thing we are seeking the one thing I want. I just want to see you and know you, and I want to do that with others. Um, so, yeah, a lot to dive into there. But those are the those are kind of the main uh, main thrusts of uh, and the main issues that I think we need to address. Well, I'd love to I'd love to go there, and I want I'm taking notes. I want to drill down on that. Let me let me ask a, a backup question to get us started, though. How did we get here? Because, you know, we were talking about when Radical was released, you were uh, sort of attacking the idea of the American dream replacing the gospel, etc. But I read 1776 by David McCullough a couple of years ago. And when you look at the issues that faced America in 1776, there were debates about women's equality. There were debates about slavery, obviously. There were debates about freedom and happiness and the right to bear arms and the role of government. And the more I read that, I don't know, four or five, 600 page book, the more I kind of realized, wow, nothing's changed in America in 270 years or whatever, 260, my math's off, but 50. Is it? I don't know. 250 years. <laughs> math was not my strong suit. Anyway, uh, over two centuries, very little has changed. So when you look at that, but and yet saying that, it feels like there's been in, an intensification in the last decade of all of those issues, that maybe they were a little more latent in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, but in the 2010s and 2020s, the chickens have come home to roost and and it's mm. like, it seems to have intensified, or is that a misreading of it? No, I definitely think there's been intensification of a variety of things. And, uh, and I would say, uh, I'm no expert on all the social trends that we've experienced over the past 10, 15 years, whether from social media to just uh, 
the, the amount of time we interact on screens and through devices and how the effect of that change and, and, and then add on top of that COVID. And so it feels like we've layered onto some of those issues uh, a lack of uh, ability, particularly in the church. So this is where I'm not, not an expert, but I know more just as pastoring a local church, the ability to sit down and walk through these things with our Bibles open, with humility, with understanding, and a spirit of prayer and fasting together. Um, like, that's not the way the world operates. And I feel like we've been caught up in the way the world operates in addressing this issue. So, yes, I think a lot of the issues are the same. I mean, that's that's part of the challenge, right? That, yes, 250 years later, why are we still talking about this? Are we still segregating by the color of our skin in church? Like, what is, what is, so what is behind that? Like, what, and so a lot of those issues are the same. How we address those issues has been, I think, what has uh, been in many ways discouraging over the last uh, few years is the lack of ability to, yeah, with humility. I mean, when we as a church uh, in, May, June, 2020. So this was after COVID had just come about a few months before then George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. We, we walked through, like uh, opened our Bibles together with hundreds of people in our church and just said, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, we're going to look at what the gospel is, we're going to look at what the church is, how we operate as the church, and then we're going to look at biblically what justice and race, how does the Bible address these issues? Um, and so, but I found that even trying to do that and especially because at that point in light of COVID, we were doing it via screens. It was really hard to get the church to have good, humble, meaningful dialogue along those lines. So I think how we address those issues has really been shown to be found wanting over the last few years. Well, I am still trying to figure out, it's funny, I was thinking about it recently because, you know, I travel a lot and every state handled COVID differently and every country handled COVID differently. But I'm wondering how that became a political issue, like an ideological mm-hmm. issue. Um, and you're right, like sitting down and praying and fasting and talking about Ahmad Arbery and uh, racial justice has become a political issue, which is really interesting. Any insights on like why everything is so politicized these days? I, well, I mean, it's certainly the... Uh, water we're swimming in. I mean, this is the, we, we are, this is, this is the polarization of uh, politics. I mean, it's all around us. And that's where I feel like we are missing an opportunity to show the beautiful distinction that happens in the body of Christ, to not get caught up in that. Now, to be clear, like I'm all for letting the Bible inform our politics. Um, So yes, we want the Bible to inform every part of our lives. And so our theology should inform how we think about political issues, but it should also inform the way we interact in the political arena. It should also inform the way we interact with people. love people around us, like our theology informs that. And our theology is, as followers of Jesus, this one of this, like the first chapter in the book is why I try to dive in here because uh, like there are things we hold on to first order issues. And then there are political convictions that should not divide us that we will come to different conclusions on. And uh, so that's, that's where I think we've looked to those things to unite us when they're not, they were never intended to unite us. Jesus is the only one 
who he's intended to unite us. Jesus, his word, what's most clear, most direct in his word. That's what brings us together. Not convictions that we may even be very passionate about, but that's not what unites us. And that's where even in the church, I'm saying in our church, we have engaged in those conversations about those things without fear because uh, we're not looking to those things to unite us. We are holding on to Jesus to bring us together. I think about our church, like we have over 100 different countries represented in our church family. I have no hope of uniting this church around perspectives and positions on a number of different issues. And I'm okay with that. I don't expect everybody to agree with what I think about all these things. And I don't, ex yeah, I'm not going to agree with everybody else, but we are going to hold fast to Jesus and the gospel. That's what, that's what I'm saying. So what is the biblical gospel that actually does hold us together that, that we do unite around in a way that supersedes a variety of different convictions we may hold passionately in the political arena? So, uh, yeah, I want to drill down on the issues you've raised, but let's let's ask this question then, because this is occurring to me. You had the same conversations that so many church and business leaders had, you know, whether that was on their executive team about masks versus no masks, what to say about racial justice, what to do about racial justice. You had all the issues that everyone else has had over the last three, four, five, six years. Is there a different way or how was your approach different? Because when I talk to pastors, they're still licking their wounds. There's not even a scab there, you know, like they're, they're moments away from tears when I think about the division on their board or on their staff team or the people who left or the people who didn't. And on the one hand, we want to pretend that's all in the past because it's 2023 now. On the other hand, the, the scabs haven't healed the wound at this point either. So was there a different approach that you tried or did you run into the same landmines that everyone else ran into? I'm just curious because I really agree with your premise. I just, it's very extremely difficult to do, David, as, as you know. I mean, that's why you wrote the book. Yeah, and this, this, this is... I swear you're starting to get me close to tears, Carrie, because uh, like, uh, yeah, it's been really hard. And we've, uh, yeah, we've, we've been in it. Like I, when I, uh, I was mentioning to you right before we started recording, like when I got a copy of this book, it was just like, it was overwhelming when I first got the first copy because there was so much. There's so much there, so much life, so much hurt, pain, like uh, that's where, so I I don't think we've been immune to that. I mean, whether it's been all kinds of headlines in the Washington Post uh, in ways that are unhelpful or slander and just back and forth and division and uh, some people leaving the church uh, that I sincerely grieve over and uh, and and still wrestle with how to process through a variety of those things. So, um, so all that to say, but I, I've kept pressing in because I believe, I believe Jesus and the gospel is worth it. I believe there's something more beautiful at the end of this. And that, that's where I'm so thankful for uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who along the way over the last couple of years have been in my life and just said, Hey, keep going, keep going. Don't, don't hold back in a sense. And that's that's part of why I wanted to write this book uh, is just to say to others who have been through that, who are still, either the wounds are, yeah, however fresh or scabbed over they might be, uh, there's wounds are deep. 
and uh, and to say, hey, we're we're in this together. Like we're in this together, and he is worth it. And we have an opportunity. We really, I genuinely believe we have an opportunity to experience and see more beauty than we've ever imagined. When I when I think about our in our church family, when I think about church groups that have formed over the last couple of years, where if you were to look at these people. And you were to see them anywhere else in the world, they would not. I mean, their, their backgrounds, their perspectives, their politics are totally different, but they've got their Bibles open together. Around them. It's beautiful. The only explanation for why they're in the same room, sharing life with each other, loving each other like they are, is because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only explanation for it. And that's, oh, that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of that kind of distinct community. But it's not easy getting there. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, can, um, let me see, I'm just looking at my notes here. Oh yeah, the idolatry of personal and political convictions. Can we start there? Because it feels yeah. like the whole thing's about idolatry, and I agree. I mean, the, it was Calvin who said the human heart is a factory of idols. You kill one, you produce another. I think that's true. But I think this personal and political convictions, what do you mean by the idolatry of those two things? I mean, elevating those things above Jesus and that which is most clear and direct in his word. So uh, I, as an example, there was one Sunday in late 2020 when I said, we as a church are not going to divide over who you vote for in this election. If you think we should divide over that, then this is probably not the best church for you. And we would encourage you to be in a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church that shares that conviction, if you think. So here's what's behind that. Uh, and this is what I dive into in the first chapter of the book is like, okay, I've, I've got three buckets in my mind. The first bucket being the gospel, that which is clear and direct in God's word that all Christians, followers of Jesus hold on to. Then I've got a second bucket in my mind that brings us together in local churches. And, uh, and, and I realize there's different Christians who... Uh, have different convictions about baptism than I do, or uh, church leadership and church government than I do. And that's, I don't expect everybody in Metro Washington, D.C. to be a part of the church that I pastor. Like, no way. Like, we have different ideas. And I'm glad to unite with many other brothers and sisters across the city for the spread of the gospel in the city who have a variety of different convictions on secondary issues. And then third bucket issues would be issues where we agree to disagree even in the church. And so we said, we're putting how you vote in an election in a presidential election, in the third bucket. And if you think it should be in the second bucket, then then I actually thought, though, I genuinely thought that was not a controversial statement to say that this is, this is way down. And there were people who passionately disagreed about that third bucket in our church, and they stayed in our church. There were some who said, okay, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be somewhere else. But I just, I don't think, it's wise, biblical for us to elevate how you vote in a presidential election to the level of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Like this is not even close. <laughs> so, so I want Jesus to I I want Jesus to be supreme in the church more than I want anybody to be president. And so, uh, so that would be an example of where I think we have idolized some of those convictions. I think Romans fourteen and fifteen is so helpful for us here because. There's, we're not the first to experience different passionate convictions. And I love the way Paul in that passage says, like, basically hold on to those convictions strongly. He doesn't say even ease up on your convictions. He's like, hold your convictions strongly, but don't try to unite around them. Unite around Jesus. So that's what I'm, 
I want to encourage people to have strong convictions about, yeah, all kinds of things, but realize where those convictions are in perspective to the gospel. So somebody comes up to you after a message like that and says, David, I hear you, but that's the wrong bucket. Like who you vote for in a presidential election is not a third bucket issue. It's a second or it's a first. What do you say to them? So I would say, I disagree with that. And I would say, here's why. Where do you see in scripture this, that's where I'm going to, you know, where do you see in scripture that, that this is a third, but this is a primary issue that every follower of Jesus must agree on. And then I would also say just on a practical level, it would be good to sit around with some other brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, may have different perspectives than you on that and just ask and really humbly try to understand where they're coming from, why they would come to a different conclusion and I think that would help in discerning, okay, is this person actually not, I mean, if you're putting in the first bucket, are you going to say this person is not a follower of Jesus after you've listened to them share that? I, I, I'm not going to say that. And I, and I don't think we as the church should say that. If you think it's in a second bucket issue, then I and the leaders of our church disagree with that. And so I would encourage you to find a church where that's a second bucket issue. If that's what you think unites together in a local church, you can't be in a local church with people who believe differently than you on that. Then you, then again, this is not going to be the church for you, but I would encourage you to not miss out on at least sitting down with some brothers and sisters in Christ who have some different perspectives on you than you do and seek to understand where they're coming from. So I don't disagree with you. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, David. But um, do you know, do you have any theories on why in the minds of many people, this is just not a handful of people, but like meaningful percentages, perhaps even a majority of Christians. I don't know. I don't have any data around that. Who you vote for or who you identify with politically and ideologically has become a first or second bucket issue? Like why, why has that all of a sudden become such a big deal and so defining for so many people? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one, one, much of it has to do with the political cultural climate we are swimming in, as we kind of already talked about. Two, I think that we are in most of our churches we are around people who look like us and think like us. And so that's how we view Christianity in ways that, uh, that we, that church leaders, I would say, have contributed to. I mean, I, when I think about church growth, the whole model in many ways has been built on a, what's called a homogeneous unit principle, right? That if you want to reach people with the gospel fast, then reach people people who look like a certain person and fit this certain demographic and then have a different church for different demographic people. And uh, and that's what we've done ethnically and it's what we've done politically. And so we, and 
and all kinds of different, preferentially even. So we split into different churches. And I just don't think there's biblical basis for that. I think there could have been a case made in the first century that the gospel would have spread faster among Jews if the Gentiles were not causing problems in the church like they were, or or Gentiles yeah. it would have spread faster if they didn't have to deal with all these Jewish people who were having all these hangups. But there's a zeal to bring Jewish and Gentile people together around the gospel. Uh, so... All that to say, I think this is the church culture we've been swimming in. We have uh, conditioned ourselves to be in communities of faith, uh, in bodies of Christ, local churches that look like us and think like us, where we are not around the table meaningfully sharing life with people who would have different opinions and convictions on some of these things that would cause us to realize maybe that isn't a first bucket thing. Maybe that's a second bucket or maybe it's a third bucket issue. So feel free to disagree. But one of the trends that I'm watching and have written a little bit about is uh, the politicization of church. So I think one of the poorly kept secrets now is if you really want to grow your church fast, and there's a lot of church leaders who would love to grow their church fast after COVID, the way to do that is to take a clear political position. In other words, and mostly it happens on the right. So it's like, we're a Republican church. Here's what we believe. We're anti-woke. We're anti-this. And those churches are filling up super fast right now. Now, I have about a thousand problems with that, (laughs) but... um, it is a fast ticket to church growth. I think it was The Atlantic wrote a post about that in late 2022. There have been others on the outside looking in who are like, yeah, if you are willing to do that, you will grow your church quickly. I'd love for you to comment on that and then play out some of the challenges that you see associated with that kind of approach to church growth. Oh, well, I think... So in light of what we were just talking about with like homogeneous unit principle, I, I think that's that's been true, I would say, for uh, decades, and it's been intensified now. And so, yes, try to reach this type of person with this type of message, and you will draw a crowd. And I, I would agree. I think it's on both sides, kind of the right and the left, in a sense, yeah. Under the banner of progressives have done that too. Gospel believing, yeah. even on the banner of gospel believing, Bible preaching Christianity, you've got different. Uh, but but there's, uh, I would say, there are points where that goes too far and kind of goes outside the bounds of even Bible believing and gospel preaching. But that's that's kind of the point. But I would say so. The challenges or problems with that, I just one, I don't see biblical basis for reaching one type of person. Um, two, I, I see biblical basis for people from very different perspectives and backgrounds and even convictions being together in the body of Christ and actually uh, being willing to sacrifice certain preferences or being welcome, willing to welcome, I think that's the language that Romans 15 uses, welcome your brother or sister in Christ to please your brother and sister in Christ who has different convictions than you. I think God is actually calling us to a deeper level of selflessness in the church that's willing to lay down some of those things 
those convictions that we hold on to, not to say I don't have those convictions, but to say I'm willing to be in the body of Christ and to build up a brother or sister in Christ who believes very differently from me. And I don't think they need to be in a different church. Until we make some of those steps, I think we'll continue to segregate, segregate by the color of our skin. I think we'll continue to segregate uh, really by a, a host of different worldly factors instead of uniting together around the gospel. The last thing I would say is it's, beautiful when it happens in the church, when you see brothers and sisters in Christ who look and think very different from each other together around the word, loving Jesus on their faces together in prayer, caring for each other, bearing with each other. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't have that command to bear with each other if, <laughs> there didn't, if you didn't we didn't it. have to do that. Like if that uh -huh. wasn't expected, being patient with each other, eager to maintain unity when there's challenges to you, that should be a part of the body. And it's beautiful when it happens. That's part of what I'm wanting to say in this book. Like it's worth it. It's Jesus' vision for the church. This is what heaven's gonna look like. This is what heaven's gonna involve the nations, the tribes, the peoples of the world, diversity, Revelation 7, 9 and 10, in a beautiful way. And so why are we not cultivating community on earth like it's going to be in heaven to the extent with which it's possible here? So I want to play that out a little bit. You raise generational tension. Is that uh, like that idea for homogeneity? Everybody looks like me, same background, votes the same way, same socioeconomic level. Is that a boomer and Gen X thing? Is Does Gen Z, do younger millennials think differently about that? Like if you play out the church over the next decade, where do you think that homogenous idea of the church goes? And then where does your vision of the church end up, say by 2032, 2033? Well, I would say, and obviously this is, much of this is contingent on context. Like if, if, if someone is listening to this and they're a part of a church where everybody in the entire community looks the same and thinks the same, like comes from the same background, like that's, it's not like, okay, we're not experiencing biblical Christianity, but to the extent with which we have the opportunity to build community across a variety of different lines of this world as that super, it's superseded by Jesus. So I just want to make that caveat. Um, so the extent of which we're able to do that, I, well, I'm convinced if, if this is God's desire for us, it's going to be good for us in all generations. I do think there is a, a and it's part, part of why I wrote in the very beginning, but like this is for the next generation who I think longs to see more of Christ. I want to see more of Jesus. I want them to see that there's a difference in the Bible, that they don't need to disengage from the church because the church is so much more beautiful than anything this world offers. And the reason why they're, in some ways, tempted to disengage from the churches because the church is looking like the world, but that's not God's design for the church. And so I do think we are, in one of the chapters, I try to yeah flesh that out more. Like we are hurting though, our witness to the next generation with the way we're handling the Bible and dividing in the church and uh, over things that are not primary or secondary even. Um, so I think we're we're hurting the next generation, but I would say that affects every generation. And the last thing I would just mention, there's, no matter what generation we're in, uh, a tendency in us to prioritize what we want 
what feels best to us, what, uh, what we prefer, what feels most comfortable to us. And we need to all remind ourselves, whether it's Gen Z or a boomer, like we've been all called to deny ourselves, like to lay down our preferences, to build up others, to love others as ourselves, And that's going to look like laying down preferences and uh, desires that you have for this or that in order to build up others. But this is what makes us followers of Jesus in the first place. Do you think the challenges we've been talking about are also fueling some of the deconversion we're seeing and the trends in church decline? And if so, can you talk about that a little bit, David? I do think that there are some people who see the offense of the gospel, the biblical offense of the gospel, and what the Bible teaches about hot-button issues in our culture and are saying, I don't believe that. I, I believe the world over God's word. I don't. Uh, and so are, are rebelling against the, the offense of the gospel, and that will always be there. And uh, so the, I, I see that. At the, what grieves me is when people would say, I'm, uh, deconstructing or deconverting or just leaving the church, leaving Jesus. But what they're leaving is a, a picture of Jesus in the church that was not biblical in the first place, that was not right, good. And so that's why I'm eager to, to say, let's step into this moment. There's a clear vacuum. As long as we are showing the world a picture of the church that reflects the world, then of course that will be uh, disillusioning and disengaging to all kinds of people. But when we show like the distinction that uh, Jesus and the gospel create in a beautiful way, in a way that astounds Ephesians 3, like astounds even, yeah, all in the spiritual realm, like yes, the manifold wisdom of God in his design for the church. Let's show that. And I'm convinced that will be attractive. The offense of the gospel will still be there, but that will be attractive like nothing else in this world can be. I, I agree with you on that. I think that a decade from now, the church that will remain and be ascendant will be much more like the church you describe than a lot of what we're seeing today. But back to that other issue then, a lot of people might say, well, you know, the whole idea of the scandal of the cross. I hear a lot of people who might, if they think the third bucket issues. So give us a couple of examples of other third bucket issues. Like what are in your mind, third bucket issues? Well, certainly I, well, I would How put there, I say, I certainly, yeah, I, I was, I said certainly, but I was like, well, obviously the challenge is it's not certainly in a lot of people's minds. So things I would put no. there, certainly how you vote. Well, I would put theological issues like uh, end times, um, theological issues like, um, well, I would even say some, and this is where some would put it in second bucket, third bucket, but when it comes to the spiritual gifts, some would put those in a second bucket, some would put those in a third bucket. I would say in our church family, we have a variety of different, different people with different understandings of spiritual gifts. And and so we would it would be closer to a third bucket issue. Um, but then I would say certainly convictions over, uh, oh, all right. Yeah. Here's, here's a good one. I'm trying to be really yeah. careful with my words. There are issues of how we apply God's word about justice 
to the culture around us, to the politics around us that are are going to be areas where believers in our church, genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, are going to disagree. Like we had a uh, a group recently that was walking through some of those kinds of issues, and they are sitting around sharing passionately about their understanding or thoughts about everything from criminal justice to economic growth. And, um, well, those would be just a couple issues where they are, they were really, I mean, we're in Metro Washington, D.C. We got a variety of people who are really passionate about those things and not just here, all, but, um, and even to the point of tears sharing, okay, I really believe strongly about this, but then in the end, they are, and then disagreeing, but in the end, this is not what makes us a church. And so, and we have actually, uh, we feel built up in Christ to be able to share who we genuinely are as brothers and sisters in Christ and how we feel about some of these things with each other to be heard and and still to have, I would argue actually, to have deeper community together as a result of that conversation. So um, yeah, those are some things that would come to mind. I think where, where I've been personally challenged is well, one, one of our pastors, Mike Kelsey, uh, he put it this way, and, and Mike grew up, uh, his dad is a pastor in, um, in, in the district, uh, and he grew up in African-American context his entire life. And he would say, the way he's put it is, I, I and others often feel like, even in a multi-ethnic church, feel like a welcomed guest where we, it's almost like a bed and breakfast where we're free to enjoy the bed and eat the meal, but it's not our pictures on the wall. It's, we don't set the menu. Um, we're, we're welcomed guests in this place. And it, when, when he shared that, it was really eye-opening for me. And then we sat down, when we, I mentioned earlier, we went through a journey where hundreds of people and uh, thinking about the gospel, church, justice, and race. And we asked all kinds of questions in that journey. People were given feedback. And we asked, have you experienced any challenges being in our church um, and because of your ethnicity or in light of the deal that relate in any way to your ethnicity? And I can't remember, I've got it in the book. I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was, it was somewhere around 80-something uh, percent of uh, white brothers and sisters said no challenges, and then it was over ninety percent of African American brothers sisters that said we faced challenges, and similarly among Hispanic, Native American, and and other. And so it was that was eye opening for me to realize, okay, like I need to realize that I'm putting some things that are third bucket in my mind, they feel second bucket to some people in our church in a way that I need to make sure there's room as a pastor for people to have different perspectives on some of those different things that are third bucket issues. And I need to make sure the other, I mean, there's a lot that goes with that because Mike would say he feels most like a welcomed guest when it comes to issues of justice and the way those are uh, expressed in the church because oftentimes a couple of certain issues are highlighted and these issues over here that are concerning to others are not highlighted. And when the Bible speaks to both of them. So yeah, there's a lot more we could talk about there, but uh, that's, I would say all in the end, this is, I've been humbled. I've been challenged. I'm, I'm a 
different person after leading in this church alongside brothers and sisters in Christ who are very different from me. And I don't think I would love the word any less. I don't think I love the gospel any less. Now that it's been part of the accusations along the way, but I I, I would tell the Lord and his word and the gospel more as a result of experiencing the body of Christ in these ways. You know, part of the challenge, I think, David, is that there are people who would say, and I've seen this all over the place, and perhaps I'm guilty of this myself. These third bucket issues are the first bucket issue. And we say people are offended by the gospel, and that's why they're walking away. But they're actually not. They're offended by us. They're offended by third bucket issues. How do you help someone see that that might be the case? Because I think we're we're all suffering from a case of blindness because our issue, how you vote, what you believe about justice, what you believe about uh, racial equality, what you believe about, you know, pick your issue, political issue, the Supreme Court, uh, abortion or whatever, that is the gospel. That is now substituting for the gospel. So, you know, for leaders who may be either themselves unaware that a third bucket in their mind has become the gospel, or for those who are trying to help people see that, hey, this isn't like a first bucket issue. This isn't like the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is this is third bucket. How, how do you how do you help people see that and get over what perhaps might be their blindness? I really think the key is getting together in the same room around the same table. I mean, there's a sense in which this is what we should be doing every Sunday around the table and in worship and seeing the bread and the cup and the body and the blood and realizing oh, this is this is precious and supreme and a lot of other things kind of fade in the background around this. But I would say, uh, so I have seen this over and over again when people are willing to get around with their Bibles open and start with, all right, the gospel. What do we believe about the gospel? And be like, okay, we're on the same page there. And the church, what do we believe about the church? Uh, we believe the church loves each other, cares for each other, bears with each other, listens to each other, laments with each other, uh, humbles ourselves before each other. So what do we believe about the church? This is who we're gonna be together. Uh, so, all right, all right, we're holding on to the gospel. This is who we are as a church. Now let's talk about uh, fill in the blank, uh, criminal justice reform. Let's talk about um, who you vote for as president. Let's talk about how to address the uh, picture of abortion in our country. Let's talk about and fill in the blank, how to address poverty. And, um, and okay, you share this perspective. You share this, but how did you get there from the word? How did you get there uh, in light of your the word, your experiences in life, this or that? And then to be able to share that. And then you've already got the foundation around the gospel. You're understanding this is what it means to be the church. And then you're diving into that. I, I've seen over and over again, that conversation lead to beautiful places and people saying, I feel heard. I feel like others understand me. I don't think they agree with me and I don't expect them to because I don't agree with them. Um, but we love Jesus and we're going to share the gospel together. Like to, I think the other part of that is let's lift our eyes to the for us in Metro DC, millions of people around us who don't know this gospel. I mean, I was just preaching uh, this last Sunday on the reality of an eternal hell, like, 
And it's so interesting. Right after Jesus, at the end of Mark 9, I, it, it stuck out big time to me. At the end of Mark 9, he's just talked about hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched, like unquenchable fire. These are the words that Jesus uses to describe hell. And then he closes, he says, and be at peace with one another. And it's like, where did that come from? And I'm sitting there just meditating on it, thinking, well, of course. Like if, if our eternity is secure, then we do not need to be fighting with each other. We need to be <laughs> working together yeah. to get this good news to people around us who don't have a secure eternity. Like, And all the more with 3 billion people in the world who've never even heard the gospel. Like, what are we doing? Uh, and, and I just, uh, I think our perspective changes, uh, not just when we take that time as brothers and sisters in Christ, but when we we turn together and look at people who are on a, who are desperately in need of Jesus and their eternity hinges on hearing it from us, that that changes uh, our perspective as well. So let's talk about the multi-ethnic church, the multi-ethnic beauty of the church and uh, the racial tensions and injustices we're seeing around us. You also really identify that as being a, a problem in the church these days. Can you say more about that, David? Yeah, I have a, a lot I could say about that. How do I summarize it? Well, in in the book, I try to dive into, one, the racial disparities that are undeniably present in the United States, and then the racial division that has existed in the United States for centuries now, like ever since slavery, we have divided into different churches based on our skin color. And we're still doing it today. Like instead of countering this racial divide with the gospel, we're actually perpetuating it. And I trust that we all hate racism and slavery and Jim Crow laws in history. So how can we be content then when so many churches and seminaries and mission organizations and Christian conferences today look like time, com time capsules preserving the division of the past? Like, Surely it's time to turn that tide. And so what is that going to look like for us as followers of Jesus and for our churches. And that's where the, the church that I pastor has taught me and changed me. I have so much to learn and I have learned so much. I just think about being at a meeting recently with leaders in our church and I'm looking over at the table and there's women and men from Sri Lanka and Cameroon and South Korea there's people born in China and Colombia and the U.S. and Haiti. And then I'm looking around, even those who were born in the U.S., like I see black, white, brown faces. I see many people who grew up in environments like I did, where everybody looked like them and thought like them. And to see this picture of brothers and sisters in Christ and leaders in the church. So not, uh, and that's, that's important because it's not just as followers of Jesus, but to the extent of which possible to cultivate that kind of 
Revelation 7, 9, and 10 kind of diversity among leaders in the church. And to see all these brothers and sisters who are willingly facing challenges and making sacrifices in order to experience uniquely countercultural, gospel-shaped family in the church. Like, don't we want to be a part of that to the extent possible where we live to work intentionally? And I, I say that specifically from my perspective, and I could give all the caveats here, so would give the caveats. Like, I'm not saying I should feel guilty for being white, that I should feel guilty for sins in the past of people who look like me, but as someone who the people who've gone before me who've looked like me have not just ignored injustice, but have actually contributed to and led the way in injustice. And not just people, but pastors, church leaders. I should be all the more zealous to work as intentionally and wisely and work as hard as possible to turn that tide and to bring down walls of division and be a part of cultivating a more beautiful picture of the church than we've experienced in American history. Like what an opportunity we have to do that today. And I just want to step fully into it. I believe we must step fully into it because Jesus came to make this possible for us. And so tons more could be said there. Even uh, the one chapter in the book I have on, on this, and it, and it comes out in other chapters as well, but is is uh, very insufficient uh, to, to really think through uh, racial disparities and the reasons behind those, and even disagreements people have about the reasons behind those, and then racial division in the church and how to overcome that and I'm just saying in this book and would say even now, like, let's be zealous to cultivate the multi-ethnic beauty that Jesus has made possible for us in the church today in a way that would turn the tides on centuries of division, mm. specifically in my country. Let's talk about culture wars. Um, what other elements of the culture wars are playing out in the church these days? Well, I would say that sexuality is a major issue in our culture. And that there's all kinds of political battles associated with that. There are all kinds of personal struggles associated with that in homes and in public schools. And I mean, so the it, it is affecting so many parts of life. So... What I'm arguing for in this book is the Bible does speak really clearly and counterculturally about sexuality. And I've written about that in books in the past um, about man and woman and the beauty of man and woman created in the image of God and, uh, and marriage and sexuality. So I'm, I want to be super clear about those those truths at the same time, I want to be super compassionate toward people who have different views, have different perspectives, who have different have a variety of different struggles. And I'm convinced there's a, there are ways that we can as the church show that kind of compassion in greater ways 
while holding on to our conviction. And one of the things I do in the end of the book and just on a personal level, just trying to help people think, okay, practically, what does this look like? Like find somebody who would think that Christians really don't like them or would have a negative view of Christians or and go out of your way to love, care for, share life, hear their story, share your story, like be involved in their lives in a way that, that shows the honor of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the care of Jesus, and, and of course, share the gospel of Jesus in the process. But, but let's go out of our way to make sure. When I think 1 Peter chapter 2, honor everybody. Do the people who disagree with us in the culture wars, do they see that we honor them? And I think many times that's not what we're communicating. How would you respond to the comment, we shouldn't be talking about justice, we shouldn't be talking about all of these things, we should just preach the gospel? I see that on social so often, I see that in my DMs, and how do you respond to that? Well, I would say there was a time when I believed that. Uh, I, uh, I think, specifically, I'll take the issue of abortion, for example. I would have been like, I, I, would, I never talked about abortion as a pastor, uh, and that's when I, I was convicted one day reading Psalm 139. Wait a minute. God talks about children in his image in the womb. This is a biblical issue far before it's a political issue. And so I started preaching about from Psalm 139 and similar texts about the value of children in the womb and the need to care for them. And uh, what's interesting is when I did that, and ever since I did that, I didn't get the pushback. Stop talking about issues of justice, just preach the gospel. Instead, the pushback comes, has come far more when talking about issues of race or uh, care for the poor and the oppressed. And now there's been a lot more pushback. But I think the Bible speaks really clearly about some of these other things too. But that just goes back to how I have, I've picked and chosen between different issues that I'm going to address from God's word in ways that i I don't have the right to do, uh, and we don't we don't have the right to do as pastors or leaders in the church or followers of Jesus, for that matter. So all that to say, to the extent in which the Bible addresses an issue and justice is all over the Bible, oppression all over the Bible, widows and orphans and strangers in your midst all over the Bible. So we need to talk about these things because God talks about these things. And there's a way to talk about these things while holding fast to the gospel, not leaving the gospel behind in some kind of uh, journey into, okay, we don't we don't proclaim the gospel or uh, we elevate certain issues above the supremacy of Jesus. No, that's kind of the whole point. But to the extent with which the Bible speaks, we need to speak as leaders in the church and extent with which the Bible speaks, we need to follow as children of God. So, uh, all that to say, uh, I want to preach the gospel and do justice because, well, that's what's required of us, Mike six, Micah 6, eight. Yeah. So, you've got six steps to a different future. Feel free to touch on some of them, all of them, whatever. What are, what's a way forward here? Uh, I, so, I, I, I'm, I'm careful to say, uh, like, I don't think there's a simple solution. There's not a silver bullet here, but 
I do think there are some practical things we can do. One is to, like we talked about, cultivate community on earth as it is in heaven. Like, how can we intentionally pursue? And so I just kind of walk through some practical steps to intentionally pursue multi-ethnic community as the body of Christ, no matter what context you're in. Um, and then, so another thing, I, instead of seeking God as a means to an end, what would it look like for us to seek God as the end? And I just walk through some of the things we've done as a church family to uh, uh, spend hours all night, some nights in prayer together and not gathering together to hear a sermon. Uh, obviously, that's it's good. It's good to hear from God's word through human instruments, not gathering together to hear this band or this, but just gathering together, Psalm 27. We just want to seek God and we're going to seek him all night long for hours and hours at a time together. And he's going to be the end that we're seeking. So what does that look like in our lives, our churches? Um, I think one of the things, so one of the things I dive into practically there is, is turning our attention to 3 billion people in the world who have little to no knowledge of the gospel. Like we have not been called to live for the prosperity of one nation. We've been called to live for the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. And if there's 3 billion people who have little to no knowledge of Jesus right now, we should be talking about that all the time. We should, that should be consuming us. We should be, that should change the way we're praying. It should change the way we're giving. It should change the way we're going and sending in our churches. Like we should be talking all the time, not about making a nation great. It's about making Jesus great among the nations. Like this, this should be driving us. And in a way that I kind of walk through, it's like I can quantitatively show it's not happening. That's not where our focus is. Um, so those are just a few of the practical things. I, I think there's three or four others that I dive into. But I there are, again, I think we have opportunities, even to take that last one. That's where I, I hope people walk away from this book and maybe even hopefully this conversation like and uh, church culture that has been discouraging in many ways, encouraged, like there's so much opportunity we have. What a unique time and place to be in where we have, like we have more opportunities to spread the gospel among the nations than ever before in history, Carrie. Like Paul could have only dreamed about the technology we have, the ease of travel, the, the globalization of the marketplace, the opportunities for us to get them. We, from a device in our phones, we can do what he never could have even dreamed of. And it's, I mean, a device in our pockets, like it's right there. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, we have opportunities today to be a part of the beauty of following Jesus and the church in ways far beyond what we've dreamed if we'll be willing to not hold back from stepping into some of these issues. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? You know, uh, on a personal level, and I share some of this in the book, actually share more about it, but I'll just make it quick. Like Heather and I, my wife and I were on a date one night and we were talking about a lot of the challenges we've been walking through. And it was, it was a low point. And, uh, but I looked at her and I said, babe, I can honestly say that I know God more and I love God more and I trust God more now than I did two or three years ago. And I looked at her and I said, I guess if God is the goal, then these are great days. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it, Gary? Like God is the goal. And, uh, and, and so I just, that's, 
that's what's driving me now. It's what's driven me to write this book. What I would want to say to every listener, like he's worth it. Like, so, so even when it's hard, even when it's costly, when he's the goal, when he's the reward, then it's worth it. So I, I, I hope we can be encouraged and not hold back from following him with everything in us, confident that he's worth it. As you've changed the dialogue at your church, and I know we're talking before the book has been released, so, you know, wait and see. What price do you pay for this message? What are the barbs coming at you? What's the pushback? Because I think there's a lot of people who would want to go there, but they're really afraid to go there because they're like, well, if I start putting these issues in the third bucket, we're going to lose 50% of our church. We're going to, I'm going to have so many angry emails. It's just easier to play the game. Yes. What price do you pay? All, all the, all the, like I would say, um, there's, there's personal cost. I mean, I won't go into all the details that I don't in the book, but some of the things on a personal level that, um, yeah, just it's it, the there's cost in your life and your family, um, and then I would say in the church, uh, yeah, not everybody will go, and I, I I don't I don't ever view that lightly, like uh, or like go with you. Um, so I don't view that lightly. I want to shepherd people well, um, and then slander accusations of all sorts from all sorts of directions um misunderstood uh and oh man this is yeah, yeah so what happens heavy. inside you about. when you get slandered when you get misunderstood like how do you process that stuff and not let it lead to you throwing in the towel shutting up or just saying ah it's just easier not to push back well, it's it's definitely tempting to do all the above that you just mentioned. Throw in the towel, step back. How how not to? I would say, I mean, this is going to sound so basic, but it's it's without question the first thing that comes to my mind is like time before the Lord every morning when you wake up, the audience of one saying, "I just want to be faithful to you. I just want to be faithful to you. I just want to be faithful to you," and and clinging to His Word. I don't I don't want to. I don't want to be. Uh, I don't. I don't want to not be preaching God's word. I don't want to be loosening my grip on the gospel. So if people are saying that, like, I want to make sure I'm. I'm not doing that. And so to press in all the more. Uh, and I think it's good to have obviously wise counselors in your life who you can say, Hey, is this true? Like, am I, am I doing this or that? Or and and so to have people, not just people who will tell you what you want to hear, but people who will be honest with you and by God's grace from from my wife to others in my life. That's, I, I think that's true. And uh, I need those people in my life. Um, but when when I'm meeting with the Lord, walking in step with his spirit and getting good counsel along the way, holding fast to his word, hiding his word in my heart, memorizing his word, fasting, whatever, whatever like all those spiritual disciplines we know to do, abiding in him, then there's a, there's a strength and peace and comfort and and boldness and courage. That's what I pray for all the time, Kiri. I pray for wisdom and courage. I because I, I don't want one of those without the other, right? I don't want to be <laughs> yeah. wise 
wise and timid, like know what to do and afraid to do it. And I don't want to be, uh, uh, yeah, foolish and courageous. That's really bad. So I pray all the time for wisdom and courage and, uh, and to trust the Lord. Like I, uh, yeah, trust that he sees, he knows, he, his, his justice will reign in the end. Um, that, uh, I think about one brother in Christ who's a, one of the sources of wise counsel in me. He's like, David, I think you just need to lower your expectations for this world. And I think that's a good word. I think I don't need to have too high expectations for this world. And it's been so encouraging too, reading the Bible in a fresh way. Like, it's not like Paul was not walking through these things. I mean, he's like saying yeah, over yeah, and over yeah. again, I am not lying. Do this, like, hear me like this. And, and, and so it's like, well, I signed up for this. We signed up for this as followers of right. Jesus and all the more so as leaders in the church. We signed up for this. And and again, going back to that what Heather and I were talking about on date night, there's a there's a depth. I I maybe I would summarize it this way. When uh when you're in some a, a dry time, a hard time, and you find yourself having to dig a well deeper, like the water's just not coming as quickly as maybe as it comes in really sweet times like you dig a deeper and deeper and deeper well but you find a, a water to depth you haven't found it before it's there's a, a purity and a sweetness and a refreshing uh yeah nature of that water that that it's not always found when it was just easy to find well, I'll tell you, the book is called Don't Hold Back. I'm so glad you didn't. I'm so glad you went there. We need this conversation. I think if we take it seriously, we're going to get healthier and better and stronger as a church and as people of faith in the world trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate it. So the book's available everywhere. It's called Don't Hold Back. If people want to track with you online these days, easiest place to do that, David? Would be radical.net. And you know, can I mention one other thing, yeah. Carrie? I know Please you're do. totally Please closing do. this out yeah. and you're closing out. No, no, yeah, no. like, but I just want to mention one other thing because I think about our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Uh, I think they're, they beckon me, us to not hold back. I mean, yes, this, these last couple of years have been challenging. Then I think about uh, friends of mine in Afghanistan who are holding, not holding back and they could die tomorrow because they're not holding back and they're following Jesus at great cost. Like they, I want to, I want to press on alongside them. And, and I, what I'm walking through, it doesn't even compare with some of the things they're walking through. So I would just add that the, the global body of Christ beckons us not to hold back. That's incredible. Uh, wisdom and motivation and a great place to end things. David, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. It's mutual, Gary. Thanks. Well, I hope you found that invigorating. I certainly did. And a really needed conversation. You got to check out his new book. You can check out everything we talked about. We got links to it, including transcripts from today's conversation for free for you over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 563. And so if you heard something and you're like, what was that again? Yeah, check out the show notes. And also a reminder, we are on YouTube and doing more and more in that field all the time. So you can just go to YouTube and search Kerry Newhoff. You'll find me there or search the guest name and they'll probably pop up with me as well. 
So today's episode is brought to you by the Church Leader Toolkit. Hey, if you want to break growth barriers and you want some resources to help you find and develop leaders, I've got something free for you. It's the Church Leader Toolkit, completely free, churchleadertoolkit.com. Get you started today. And Glue can help you reach up to 12 new contacts every month if you're a church that signs up for their new REACH program. You can go to get.glue.us slash reach to connect with more people from your community who say they want to connect with a local church. Man, I got a lot coming up on the podcast. What have we got? We got, I'm doing an integrity series. I'm really bothered by uh, the moral failures in the church, the things in the church that honestly just set us backwards again and again. I've got Henry Cloud, Caitlin Beatty from Celebrities for Jesus, uh, Eric Peterson, Eugene Peterson's son, and Wynn Collier and Chuck DeGroat lined up for that. I think you're not going to want to miss it. Also coming up, Seth Godin, Michael Hyatt, and Megan Hyatt Miller, Sherelle Jackson. Uh, Warren Bird is coming back, which is going to be a lot of fun. Also, Judah and Chelsea Smith. Kevin Kelly, someone who Tim Ferriss calls the most interesting man in the world and a lot more. But next episode, Gretchen Rubin. I love this conversation. Here's an excerpt. Energy is so important to think about and focus on because, and that's why I made it the first thing uh, in the Mm. Happiness Project, is that if you have energy, everything else is easier. Everything else that you know would make you happier, it's easier. Uh Because a lot of times you're like, oh, I should have a Super Bowl party. But I can't face like oh, oh, all the errands and the d- emails and the this, like and cleaning up the house, like I can't deal with it. Or like, sure, I should start a book group. That would be so fun. Or I should plan, what you know, a family outing, but you're just so exhausted that you can't face it, mm-hmm. even though you know it would make you happier. So Gretchen Rubin, next time on the podcast, you can get that totally free if you subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please do us a favor, share it on social. Uh, you can tag me, I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, wherever you happen to be on social. I'm Kerry Newhoff or C. Newhoff, easy to find there. And uh, yeah, you'll probably find me even with a misspelling. It's that kind of name. Uh, Also, I would love to connect with you for something really cool. I've got a special live recording of this podcast. I'll tell you who it is. We're sitting down with Ritz-Carlton founder and COO Horst Schultze live in Atlanta the morning of April 26th. It's a Wednesday. If you're in the Atlanta area or if you're going to Orange Conference or Rethink, make sure you swing by. You'll get to watch an interview live and in person, be part of the audience, have a chance to ask your questions live, and then stay for a short meet and greet afterwards. Totally free to attend, but you have to register for free. Seats are very limited. If you're interested in a spot, please sign up only if you're 100% committed to attending. I know a lot of people are going to want to be in, and we want to make sure that people who actually show up are going to get there. So you can register for free now at cnlp.live. That's cnlp, Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, dot live. Again, cnlp.live, or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. I hope today's episode has helped you identify and scale a growth barrier you're facing.